0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage It's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 3.10 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness, and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame in some ways can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame in other ways can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis three ten and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves and as a result, um, have to deal with that damaged view, as at least even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them. Literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us. New book out by University Press called The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories. We Believe About Ourselves, as I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight.
1: Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you.
0: Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be helpful? If, for example, if I, if I were to back into a lit stove... Without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically?
1: I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families and let alone what we know from neurobiological perspective that the experience of shame is common it's normal uh... we experience it early and often as human beings actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it given how it functions in our brain uh... but it's also true that uh... that the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself in our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what the, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this. We reinforce it in our own lives. And then we tend to spread that because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes. Um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it.
0: And the irony about this is that there is that sense when, when we um, are aware of our own shame, um We feel vulnerable. I mean, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you you can correct me on that. But but there's interesting something there, because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God... And and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same?
1: Well, we certainly do the same. And I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book. Um, and I think that you know one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable. Uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing. Like, we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, What's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman, were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. And the reality is that you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, it doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis in that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion. And the irony now as we see that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. Both of those things, between a man and a woman, and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy, require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis one twenty-six and 27 when text tells us that god says let us make mankind in our image that we are made as plural beings we are made as people who were intended for each other and therefore in genesis 2 18 when he says it's not good for the man to be alone in fact because we are so vulnerable it is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves. But it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation. Not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe.
0: If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But it's interesting how typically our response is that when when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, We recognize that we're fearful of being exposed to others. But as Dr. Thompson points out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues.
2: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that, that God died for us while we were at, yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and, and rather than, than allowing shame to, to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God. How do we make that happen, though?
1: Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us When we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter, it's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And, Of course this dialogue leads to Peter and at one point uh, says that and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time do you love me. I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of uh, one can assume, one one can imagine uh without of course having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the gospel around this story. One could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering. Well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real, embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus, he said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge Uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually... Activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the Scriptures and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ,
0: so when we're exhorted in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of I think what you're suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to, to experience what it's like to be forgiven.
1: That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another. And a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with, and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles, in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not shame, ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. we in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, Therefore fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him Endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to. Uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame? Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks, that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful
0: influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God Uh, that damage view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can um, bring about not just the, the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system, That tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Newly published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects including Amazon.com.
2: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: As we introduce our guest tonight, I am reminded of many of the weddings, certainly down through the years that I have attended, where generally after a few glowing words that are spoken by a minister in attendance, uh, there's an exchange of vows, and, and much of this seems to focus on largely the notion that they're going to live happily ever after, they are completed in each other, uh, that there is uh, just a wonderful thing that happens when two people come and, and pledge their love in marriage. And then, of course, reality sets in. And I, And I say that somewhat with tongue planted in cheek, but yet I think a lot of us have some pretty big distortions about what marriage is, what the roles are between the spouses, and uh, what the expectations ought to be. And boy, especially in this arena of expectations, uh, oftentimes people are in for a very rude, rude awakening. And of course, uh, the evidence of that is the divorce rate in America today. Well, Dr. Chris Thurman has taken the time to dig down into many of these myths concerning marriage and outright says, look, uh, you need to rethink your approach. You need to go into this by being transformed by the truth if you're going to have the hope of a successful marriage relationship. Dr. Thurman, as we mentioned, is an author. He is also a Christian psychologist. He's conducted hundreds of personal growth seminars addressing uh, topics including marriage. And his new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And Dr. Thurman, good to have you with us on the program.
2: Craig, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, this is a, an experience in life where, amazingly, a lot of married couples go into this thing with eyes wide closed, don't they?
2: Well, unfortunately, we do. We walk down the aisle and... Uh... We think we might have a pretty good handle on what we're getting into, but uh, God certainly uses the marital relationship to um, challenge us and to get us to uh, see more clearly what marriage is all about and how he's trying to use it to help us to mature.
0: This this image first out the gate, and it largely seems to be uh, kind of the thing of which uh, fairy tales are made of as opposed to most realistic and long-term marriages and that is this notion that we're going to live happily ever after that once we say i do and the ring exchange has taken place that it's only the rare couple or the people that don't work hard enough that end up getting into trouble but most don't most couples when they go into this really think that that they've got all they need to be successful
2: i I think they do craig i think that's a, a common assumption that people make um and I do think that we buy into kind of the Hollywood notion that um, it will be happily ever after. And uh, as you said earlier, the reality of marriage being difficult and people being fallen and hurtful at times uh, begins to set in. And then we're not so happy, and we begin to question if we're not careful Having gotten married, and we begin to think about other options and uh, think that happiness might be somewhere else out there for us
0: hmm. failed or incomplete expectations that that seems to kind of be one of the most glaring if we had to look for uh, maybe an overall overreaching overarching phrase about where people run into so much trouble doesn 't it that their expectations for what marriage is about, their expectations about how they're going to relate to their spouse, how their spouse will relate to them, is oftentimes one of the big danger areas, isn't it?
2: I think it is. I think we do, uh, even if it's unconsciously, I think we go into marriage with these uh, fairly lofty expectations and that uh, oftentimes are not all that grounded in reality as to what a person can bring to us, what we can bring to them. And so expectations can be a real killer in a marriage and lead people to be bitter and resentful when those expectations are not lived up to.
0: Let's reset a few. Early on in the book, and and when I read your new book, The Lies Couples Believe, I thought, boy, um, (laughs) wouldn't this upset a lot of brides who were busy uh, writing their marriage vows Uh, to read the book and and specifically your chapter on uh, how the spouse will complete me or will meet all of my needs. I, I've been to many weddings where the vows that are exchanged and lovingly you even see this take place during the reception when they're toasting each other or cutting the cake, how that my husband so-and-so, my wife so-and-so, she completes me. And that flowerly language sounds lovey-dovey, but it falls short of a major reality, doesn't it, Doctor?
2: It does. Um, you know, the reality of every human being is that we're finite and uh, we can't possibly meet the total package of needs that another human being has. But again, we buy into the idea that if we have found the right person, they're going to be capable of completely meeting every need that we have. And uh, what I try to discuss in that chapter is God has a wide variety of healthy, appropriate ways to meet your total package of needs and that we need to be careful not to drop all of our needs on our spouse's doorstep.
0: And that's pretty, uh, pretty unrealistic too, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the enormous amount of pressure that it puts on an individual. I mean, think certainly from a Christian perspective, uh, we ought to be thinking about God as the one Uh, who is most completely and fully capable of meeting all of our needs, to put that kind of pressure on a spouse to have that level of expectation. I mean, it it would seem to me you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment because, let's face it, we all make mistakes. We're all frail. We're all human. We are still all struggling with sin.
2: Well, we are. And, uh, you know, I I don't think God is bothered that we put that pressure on him because he's omni. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere at once. So he's not intimidated by us turning to him for our needs to be met. And and I think he—my own understanding is that he wants us to be incredibly careful about not putting that kind of pressure on a spouse— or a best friend or anyone else down here on earth.
0: We're talking about this matter of being transformed by truth in marriage relationships with Dr. Chris Thurman. The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe and I, I find it interesting because we get into early chapters in the book that talk about the misnomer of happily ever after or how that uh, my spouse will complete me or meet all of my needs and it, it's very evident that those two misconceptions alone sets the marriage off the rails pretty quickly that the balance of the chapters in the book deal with now the sudden attempt at compensation when things are not going idealistically. And, of course, we find out that there's an awful lot of lies that we believe in that attempt to try and compensate or reason our way through why things aren't going as idealistically as we thought they would or should. We'll talk about that further as our discussion continues. Dr. Chris Thurman, our guest, he is the author of The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues.
2: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Chris Thurman. His new book, The Lies Couples Believe, How Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. Let's talk a bit about um, how this goes off the rails pretty quickly, Doctor, and you dive into this fairly early on in the book. One of the One of the lies that is oft-repeated, and I think it's sort of our attempt to try and and, and mentally uh, justify the early cracks that we see in the fuselage, so to speak, in our marriage, and that is this notion that, well, yeah, there's some difficulties here, but my spouse is really the bigger problem.
2: You know, Craig, I think that's very common for people to um, think that way, uh... it is my spouse who's got more issues they are the more troubled person they have the bigger plank in their eye than i do in mine and that kind of uh, mindset obviously is pretty hurtful to the person that you're married to uh... it's pretty uh, for lack of a better word it's pretty arrogant for us to think that uh... we are not equally as big of a mess as a human being and um It's just sad that we would ever, you know, have that attitude and uh, not have a more humble attitude of, you know, I've got my issues, Uh, I am just as much a co-creator of our marital health or sickness, and I need to be uh, humble about that when I'm interacting with my
0: spouse. You know, oftentimes that same distorted perception as to who the problem is, also tends to be a means by which we sort of self-justify by saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm making the effort. I'm doing all the hard work. Some spouses might say, well, I work all day long and I bring home the paycheck. Or the other spouse says, yeah, but I'm taking care of the kids and taking care of the house. And so as a result, I'm entitled to my spouse's love. Talk to us about that lie.
2: Craig, the, uh, the whole issue of entitlement uh, is especially toxic in marriage. Um, And that's a tough uh, teaching to go into these days because I think, unfortunately, uh, we're almost raised to think that we are entitled. You know, we're entitled to the good life. We're entitled to be treated with respect. And when it comes to marriage, if we're not careful, we think we're entitled to our spouse being loving, entitled to them being kind, entitled to them uh, carrying their fair share of the load. So what I'm after in that chapter is I want us to consider shifting away from an entitlement mindset to I would like my spouse to uh, love me. I would like my spouse to help me carry the load. More of a humble attitude of I want that from them. I'm not entitled to it, but I desire it.
0: There's also this notion that we oftentimes... um We'll try to justify some of our own faults or failures by saying, "Well, you know, I am the way I am because uh, no, you know, no fault of my own. This was the way I was raised. I realize that I have simple or a certain uh, uh, failures or faults, but at the end of the day, my spouse just has to accept me the way I am. And of course, that usually is coupled with and but all of the defects that he or she has, I'm going to work toward changing them. They have to change, not me."
2: Yes, I uh in that chapter I mentioned the uh cartoon Popeye, <clears throat> because one of his more iconic lines was, I am who I am. And um, what I'm going into there is a lot of people have that attitude, and it's really kind of a smokescreen for, I don't want you to push me to change. I don't want you to be on me about anything that I might need to polish off the rough edges of. So do we need acceptance from our spouse? Yes, of course we do. Are they supposed to accept us warts and all? Absolutely. But does that mean that we shouldn't be open to them saying, hey, I don't like this about you. Would you be willing to work on not being that way? I think a marriage that isn't an iron sharpening iron marriage is a no growth marriage. So I'm very concerned whenever my couples that come to see me kind of wrap themselves in the accept me as I am flag and basically don't want to do any changing while they're
0: married. Mm. Now, toward that end, there's also this notion that um, we would get along better if they would just think like me. This runs into cases, for example, in a marriage where there's a spender and a saver who have married. And we're saying, well, if my, if my spouse, who's this major spender, would just become a saver like me, if they just act or think or be like me, that would fix all the problems.
2: You know, I have to admit uh, that's one of mine. Um, I'm not stereotyping military families, but I grew up in a military family and uh... we were really told you know this is the way you clean things this is the way you organize things you need to wax it, shine it, windex it, salute it and uh, this is the right way to do it so when i married my wife holly thirty five years ago i had a pretty uh... stubborn attitude about you know you need to be like me i'm the one who knows how to do it right and if you're not doing it the way i do it then you're obviously wrong and you need to adjust and Uh, you can imagine how poorly that goes over with another human being who um, is more than free to be the person God made them to be and to have their own style and to not uh, apologize for that.
0: Let's talk about some other issues here that really go to the core of dealing with bitterness and anger, and uh, it's interesting because this reminds me of the person as as they're suggesting that, um, a spouse must, for example, the the other offending spouse must be the first one to forgive or has to earn forgiveness from the opposite spouse, that this oftentimes also becomes a place where we suddenly find ourselves not only trying to negotiate the the topic of forgiveness with our spouse, but I would suspect it's like trying to negotiate the terms of forgiveness with God.
2: I think so, and uh, that was one of the tougher chapters of the book to write because um I think a lot of us do think that forgiveness has to be earned and that the other person has to repent of what they're doing before we will uh, bless them, if you will, with our forgiveness. And so in that chapter, I try to go into the idea that I think is biblically solid, which is forgiveness is commanded. Uh, God says forgive, and so we are not to wait on forgiving somebody, we are not to uh, make them jump through certain hoops before we forgive. Um, and uh, I think that's a hard thing for people to to do, especially when the other person isn't sorry and they haven't stopped. So I try to distinguish between forgiving somebody, and what it takes to reconcile with them, which is another chapter of the book. But
0: And, of course, ironically, as we talk about that in perspective of our relationship with God, you know, it, it, certainly he wants there to be reconciliation. God wants to be reconciled unto his creation, wants to walk in fellowship and relationship with his creation. But we also have to ex- recognize that on God's terms it requires repentance.
2: Yes, and that's a a distinction that a lot of people also uh, are a little bit slow to get to. Uh, I try to use the uh, prodigal son story to drive home the issue of forgiveness versus reconciliation. And so in that story, as far as I can tell, the forgiveness had already been granted, if you will, by the father to his son before he returned from the foreign land. So forgiveness was already achieved. But the reconciliation couldn't take place until the son came out of the foreign land. So with my couples, I push them pretty hard on, hey, guys, you're kidding yourself. If you think you guys can reconcile, if neither of you are repentant of what you've been doing wrong, that's been hurtful to the other person.
0: The new book is called The Lies Couples Believe, how Living the Truth Transforms Your Marriage. And the book, by the way, is newly published by David C. Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as The Usual Suspects, Amazon.com and also through Dr. Thurman's website, Dr. Chris Thurman, doctor just abbreviated DR, Dr. Chris Thurman.com.